Rural health care is often dependent on government payers like Medicare and Medicaid, making federal, state, and local health care policy critically important. From special designations for reimbursement to sequestration, rural health policy directly impacts the patients, employees, and viability of rural hospitals. So, how do we identify and promote policy that supports rural hospitals? With consistent advocacy efforts, engagement with elected officials, and an unwavering persistence. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 14 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and CEO of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. We are on Part 2 of our series of the 5 Ps, which we learned from Mark Holmes of the North Carolina Rural Health Research Center. We covered population in Part 1, and now we're on to policy. This is one of the Ps that actually inspired our podcast uh, so long ago. It seems like it was just yesterday, but it was all almost a year ago that we sat down and, and had a discussion about how can we advocate for rural health more than just beyond the walls of the hospital and beyond the county. And so that's what really created uh, the momentum behind this program. So we're excited uh, today. So, uh, Rachel, I don't know about you, but uh, I know that you've spent a lot of time uh, working in different agencies and uh, your background, having worked in uh, politics yourself. Uh, you ran for office. Just a little bit, yeah. Just, just a little bit. <laughs> ran. And you Didn't ran. win, but I ran. <laughs> well, hey, uh, you ran. But uh, important to that is that you have to have a good policy platform. Right. And uh, so I'm excited uh, to share today with uh, one of my good friends who's with us, but we're going to talk a little bit more about policy. Right. And advocacy and awareness for rural hospitals in particular and improved rural health policies at every level is really important to us because we know that it affects us federal, state and local. So today we're going to talk to someone who is directly involved in the development of policies and the passage of new laws to put that policy into action. Well, that's right, Rachel. And so today our guest is Representative Tim Wahlberg, United States Congressman representing Michigan's 7th Congressional District. So welcome to Rural Health Rising, Tim. Good to be with you both. And it's uh, it's not an unfamiliar experience to, to be with you. And I'm glad you're keeping this this podcast moving to talk about key issues. Well, Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work in Congress? You've been serving us for quite a while. We've had that privilege. Uh, it's, it's been now uh, just finished up 12 years over the course of 14. I say 14 because I served one term and then I was sent home for rest and relaxation by the voter. That was in 2008 <laughs> mm-hmm. and then came back 2010 and took the seat back. Um, once they had found out that the Democrat who defeated me during the Obama landslide was not, was not the uh, centrist that he claimed to be, but rather far left uh, liberal. So we're, we're glad to be in this position. It's something that uh, I never thought I would enjoy, never contemplated politics in my life. Uh, my experience, of course, growing up on the south side of Chicago, uh, I decided that I wanted to major in forestry and get out of the city, get out into the countryside and the mountains that I had grown to love with my uh, uh, machinist tool maker father uh, and a, uh, a school teacher mother, uh, ultimately a school bus driver when uh, she gave birth to her two, two uh, twin sons, uh, wanted to take us out and help us get a chance to see something different than the uh, cold streets of the south side of Chicago. So I started out majoring in forestry. It was there uh, as a Christian that God uh, uh, 
changed directions in my life. And I saw a, a passion for communicating something bigger than just conservation, though I still love spending much time outdoors and enjoy mountains and streams and rivers and all of that. Yet I went back to Chicago of all places to divinity school and prepared for the ministry and spent after graduating uh, and uh, taking a church in rural uh, Indiana, just outside of Fort Wayne, uh, pastored a church there for five years and went back to graduate school at Wheaton College to prepare to better serve uh, was brought to Tipton, Michigan, of all places, to a little church uh, that uh, it had to be God's will because I wouldn't have chosen it, but it ended up being some of the greatest experience opportunities in my life, shaping me and molding me, making me do things that I never thought I would do, learning things, including how to type, since I'd never taken a typing course, and now I didn't have a staff <laughs> at this, my second church. I uh, didn't have a staff to do that. I had to do it. And uh, so I remember sitting in adult continuing education class with a bunch of stenographers and typists and me trying to figure out what ASDF uh, was all about. <laughs> it was a humbling experience, but I learned to type and uh, ultimately uh, spent five good years at that church learning and growing and seeing, seeing uh, things change and God bless. But then I was asked to run for the state house representatives because I got involved with the right to life issue in our community in Lenaway County. And for some reason, people wanted to take a chance and asked me to run for state house. I said, how can I run away from it? Uh, to make another long story short, ended up accepting the challenge. Lo and behold, I won my first election, took a, uh, a Republican in my own party uh, who had gone away from Republican ideals and took him out in the primary and ended up spending 16 years in the state house. Again, learning a lot being involved in a lot of things during the course of Governor Blanchard's eight years uh, in, in the governorship and then John Engler's first eight years uh, as a governor. A lot of things changed. And uh, after that was over with, I, uh, I went back to the private sector, spent two years as president of a private operating foundation, working in the space of education and community impact. I guess I was a community organizer <laughs> and uh, that was a great experience. But then uh, uh, one of my former alma maters divinity school in Chicago asked me to come back and start up a new um, whole program there and a division. And uh, I did that for another six years before I'm being asked to run for U.S. Congress. And so that's kind of brought you up to the present. I serve on two committees, one that I've got a waiver to stay on. When you're on Energy and Commerce Committee, you're only allowed to be on that one committee because it's so expansive. It's the oldest ranking committee in the entire Congress, has the largest purview of any uh, congressional committee. On that committee, I serve on Energy Subcommittee and on the uh, Telecommunications Subcommittee, which I think has a lot to do uh, with uh, what you folks are dealing with in, in, uh, in healthcare these days. And then I still serve on the Education Committee it's Education and Labor Committee now, and uh, there I've primarily had the emphasis on the issue of health, employment, labor, and pensions. Um, and uh, again, another topic that uh, works well into your space in, in healthcare today. You know, uh, Congressman, uh, I, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for quite some time, actually even before uh, I was with you in a, in a campaign uh, setting. 
uh, you actually were a guest uh, presenter and a commencement uh, speaker when I was a uh, administrator of a Christian school in Camden. Our good friend, uh, Pastor Bill Case, uh, you and I were together. You probably don't even remember those days. Um, but uh, what what stood out to me, Rachel, about the congressman, then state representative, uh, he delivered a, a speech to our graduating seniors, uh, and uh, he shared his experiences. And uh, I knew, man, this is a this is a pretty incredible guy. Uh, and what what came to my mind though is as he's talking, uh, he's he's not just uh, pontificating idealism, and you know the, he took on his own party. So uh, Congressman Wahlberg, at the time when he was state representative, him and another representative, Mike Nye, uh, who represented our district, they were close together uh, because the districts are joined together. Uh, he they became uh, the party of no. Uh, and there, and and you might say, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would you become a party of no? Because there was a lot of things happening towards the end of a, of their own party leadership's uh, governor uh, at the time who kind of wavered a little bit, and uh, they held him accountable. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, then State Representative Wahlberg and Mike Nye, you know, on the steps of the Capitol, uh, proclaiming that they're not going to allow those things to happen. And they fought for the people of our community. And I remember those stories very vividly. And that's why, actually, uh, personally, I got involved with uh, his campaign when he ran for Congress. And I've had the pleasure of introducing him I don't even know how many times, probably 50 <laughs> times, uh, you know, in the last 14, 15 years. Uh, and the the one phrase I use is Tim Wahlberg, a man of remarkable character. And he is. You're, you're not going to question him. He's, uh, you know, a Christian. He's a solid, uh, solid leader. Um, he, he, when you know he gives you his word, it is the word. So, uh, Congressman, it is so great to have you here today. And uh, we've established who you are and what you do, and you have a beautiful background. But let's start with what we call the why. Now, we do this on every episode so that we can get to know our guests just a little bit more. And since I know you, I think it's time for you to tell our audience a little bit more about your why. So what is your why? What motivates you and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, um, I, have to, I have to bring in the fact that I've been happily married, and I hope Sue has, uh, for uh, 47 <laughs> years. <laughs> and uh, in that time, uh, God bless us with three children, all grown now. We have six grandchildren, one on the way, uh, another one. And uh, those things keep me excited about living life and staying uh, involved in, in my daily life. But relative to what I'm doing now, what gets me up is to do my best. Um, I believe you know, as a Christian, and I don't back off on that. That is my, the, the reason for my life, uh, my faith in my Savior, my understanding of principles that God has put in the universe for us to be impacted. And of course, you live around his greatest creation every day as you deal with the health issues of, of people. Uh, but uh, my purpose every day is to get up and do my best for the people I represent, for the country I love, and a district that I live in. And, and that means that I do my absolute best. Uh, I, I carry out the, the, the greatest commandment to love God and my neighbor as myself. And to do that means that uh, you get up and you start moving. Uh, a good friend of mine who is a ranger in the military uh, said that the, one of the ranger uh, statements that they live by is that forward motion, however slight, always allows other opportunity to develop. And so as I sit in the minority party now uh, for the into the third year of hopefully only four years, uh, even though it's a challenge each day to try to get policy through and work it through and sometimes have to compromise and know what 
what line you can't cross in that compromise. It's still an initiative to say, I have to do my best so that I am approved by my constituency, but ultimately I hear well, well done from the God I serve. So, Congressman, let's start with your perspective on healthcare policy and uh, particularly how our current healthcare system impacts our rural communities. And, and you've lived in rural communities most of your life. Um, what do you see as the biggest policy issues affecting rural healthcare and rural hospitals today? Well, I think the issue of cost, uh, both for the uh, client, I think we'll call it, or a patient who receives healthcare. But then hospitals and individual providers that have to provide health care without a lot of transparency opportunities, with a lot of, uh, without a lot of ability to control the costs that go into it, when you have the regulatory uh, climate that's there in an insurance industry that is pushed into arranging itself because of regulations that government has put in place, uh, and, and now with the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, that's still in operation uh, to a great extent that says one size fits all and you better be able to provide all of that for everyone, even if they don't need it. Uh, Those are challenges. And then when you add to the fact that we have not looked at a system that takes away the unnecessary liability from healthcare providers, there certainly is some necessary liability. There certainly is reason to have malpractice still uh, allowed as a case to be brought. But when we have almost unlimited opportunity for malpractice suits to be put in place, liability suits to be put in place with no impact on the one bringing the suit if they bring it fraudulently, uh, that's a problem. Uh, And it adds costs that we all have to pay and uh, hurdles that the healthcare industry, which includes hospitals, and especially thinking of rural hospitals that don't have a slate of of, tens of attorneys that are going to work to represent you and allow you to continue to do your job for the community without the cost that's there. Uh, Those are challenges. And yet we found out during this pandemic that rural hospitals are needed. Uh, When we saw some of our urban hospitals get to the point of a surge, and I know that Hillsdale got it uh, the second go around, you got to a level it was almost surged, but you made it. But that was because you were there. Just think, if we hadn't had some hospitals like Hillsdale or Eaton Rapids, they're in place to carry on during this pandemic. We've also seen with with the government uh, setting a standard, uh, no questions asked, we're shutting it down and we're also gonna shut down hospitals from doing jobs that keep them viable so that they can be there to take care of a pandemic or a natural disaster or something that comes up seldom But if you're not there, you can't deal with it. So when we say you can't do elective surgeries until we tell you you can do it again, when in fact you have plenty of beds beds available and doctors that are there and ready and willing to do it, but we've shut you off from doing that type of thing. That's a concern. And I see all of that regulation, transparency, uh, and and the whole cost factor uh, that's causing significant challenges for hospitals, for medical care providers, and for the patients themselves. So 
you mentioned a lot of different policy issues we can get to with that. One that I wanted to ask you about, I know one of your priorities is closing the digital divide, which obviously is huge for rural communities, has a direct impact on health care. You mentioned serving on the telecommunications subcommittee. Um, and especially now that telehealth is coming to the forefront of healthcare delivery in the COVID-19 era, um, this could be a, a really positive thing for rural healthcare, depending on how it's done. Um, but also, you know, the digital divide is a key factor in making that really viable. Um, So we witnessed firsthand when we launched our telehealth back in March, um, that digital divide, knowing that a lot of our patients who wanted to do a telehealth appointment didn't have good enough signal in their home um, and that kind of thing. So And some just don't have internet access at all, not even the quality of it. It's just not there. So when it comes to the digital divide, what are you working on and what are you hoping to see happen in an effort to close that divide? Rachel, I'm passionate about that. You probably are hearing all the dings going off, bells and things from all of the digital stuff that's happening, all of the internet, the emails, the texts that are coming into me because I'm, I'm waiting for a, a committee hearing to begin and we're, we're, we, have to, we have to be notified. But the fact that I'm able to do this podcast with you today is evidence of, of what took place one and a half weeks before the shutdown. I got broadband. I live out in the country. I, I'm, I'm a long ways from where some of the providers were able to bring it up until just recently because of the cost of bringing uh, the lines out in the rural area of mm-hmm. our living settings. And so I'm experiencing right now an ability I would not have had a year ago. I couldn't have done wow. this with you. Uh, I didn't have the capability. I would have a little Wi-Fi that I paid a provider to have, which was super expensive and probably would have cut us off or we would have been talking stutter all the way through. I don't have mm-hmm. that. I think one of the best things that happened for healthcare during the pandemic is, is seeing the need and the ability and the fact that many patients really appreciate telehealth. Uh, and and right. the, the ability with the technology that is there to now extend that out in the rural communities through rural broadband is an amazing opportunity if we use it. It'll reduce the cost. It'll provide, I think, better patient care. It allows people to see. It's, it's amazing that the, the ability with the screens that we have to see the actual color of a person's wound or a bruise and doctors be able to say, this is what you need to do. It looks like it's improving or it looks like it's going the other way. I see some redness that shouldn't be there. We need to take some additional steps. Uh, all in the case now not having to transport grandma or grandpa or someone with COVID into the hospital, but you can still care for them. Uh, then as we think of people who want to live out in the communities, want to move out from the cities, now they have the capability to run their businesses uh, through the internet. They can have everything that they would have had back in the city. They can have out at their, their home site And I think we're going to see much more business being done from home than we ever thought possible. So all of that relates to what you do in rural healthcare and makes you viable. And in fact, now people can get the care from Hillsdale Hospital that they like. It's personal. They know the people that are working on them, their neighbors, their friends, and they know that they can get to you when they need to. So, Congressman, thank you so much for your advocacy in that area. You know, as you indicated, uh, we were mandatorily 
launched into telehealth. I mean, we wanted it, but, uh, you know, it came quick. And uh, through your efforts and your staff and some of your advocacy that you've done uh, with some of the legislation, it's been powerful for uh, here in Hillsdale. And it relates to, uh, you know, Congress passing and allowing uh, insurances to uh, lift some of the restrictions associated with, you know, telemedicine and those type of things. I'm hopeful uh, that you'll keep your eye on that, and I know you will as we move forward in the future. This is the future, and just for all the same reasons uh, that you've indicated. And so, you know, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit to something that I'm very passionate about and something that I'm sure your staff are uh, tired of hearing from me about, which is uh, rural hospital closures. And I know it's very near and dear to you because you're in a hometown area. You know, I consider you hometown to my community here in Hillsdale. Uh, You visited this hospital on many occasions. But um, the alarming statistic that we use and that prompted this program was since 2010, uh, over 130 rural hospitals and hospitals in general, uh, just whether they're small, big, medium, it doesn't matter their size, but 130, well over that now since 2010, have closed across America. And Becker's just a few weeks ago uh, conducted a research and identified that nearly 300 other hospitals across America defined as rural are at risk of closing in the next year or two. And that is overwhelming. The impact on our economy, the impact on the well wellness and the care of our community is even at stake when you consider individuals have to travel an hour or two hours away for healthcare. But one thing that I know you've been a defender of, uh, and that is uh, supporting rural health. And so you co-sponsored the Rural Hospital Closure Relief Act, uh, which now has bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. Uh, It was first introduced in 2019. You signed on immediately thereafter. Uh, You've been a champion and an advocate for us. So can you tell us and our audience a little bit more about that bill and where it stands today? Yeah, and, and, and it will be reintroduced. Adam Kinzinger, I'm sure, will reintroduce it, and I will co-sponsor that again. Um, he and I sit on Energy and Commerce Committee where all of this takes place. But it basically says that, that we have a necessity to have hospitals that are there, ready, and available to do the job. And if we don't take consideration of those rural hospitals or hospitals that are in significantly diminished capability uh, areas of, of payment for that, under, underserved, underprivileged areas, we're going to have a problem. And I know that we have wonderful um, uh, hospital networks, uh, big ones that oftentimes come in and, and take on a hospital that's in a rural community. But oftentimes we see them ultimately close that hospital after they are able now to bring all the people to the larger hospital, which again is a distance. We're talking about a critical problem for some people to make it to those hospitals, no matter how good the service is. So uh, this bill would allow hospitals like Hillsdale to obtain uh, much more easily a critical asset access hospital designation. Um, You are critical, you are needed. And just because you sit out at this present time of a proximity area, or you're inside of a proximity, you're not far enough away, you're stuck with having to be uh, on your own and not have the benefit of having that designation, which allows you more access to funds and resources, uh, which allows you the ability to get loans that are necessary time to have special programs that meet your needs and provide Medicaid, Medicare funding assistance that you wouldn't get without having that critical access hospital 
a designation. So we'll be pushing that again. I think another good outcome, you know, the uh, seeing the sunshine aspects, not only the clouds uh, of the pandemic, is we've seen the critical need for having a healthcare system that is spread out and that when we, right. of course, expect efficiency to be still the charge, but nonetheless, to have the access is, is a necessity. I think we can see this type of legislation, even like telehealth, which brought the insurance companies on board because we really forced them through yeah, the sure. process. Uh, right. Here we can see the same thing for hospitals like Hillsdale. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of, you know, rural health care versus urban and suburban, as we look at federal health care policy, obviously that affects all healthcare entities, not just us who are rural, not just our urban and suburban counterparts. So that said, as a congressman, how do you balance and develop effective policy that doesn't ignore or leave behind one group or the other? Or do you take more of a targeted approach and create specifically create separate policies for each? How do you balance that? One size doesn't fit all. I know that for a fact in clothing. Uh, <laughs> I have a twin brother, but we are not twins <laughs> in the sense of what we can wear. Um, uh, I know that, that one size doesn't fit all in in uh, motorcycles or, or cars or, or the likes, the things that I enjoy. I know that my shotgun for, for uh, duck hunting uh, is set up different than my shotgun for sporting clay. Uh, one size doesn't fit all in healthcare either. And I think uh, to uh, look at policy that says, let's find a way that we can create certainty for healthcare providers that meet their specific needs as long as they are doing the job, doing it efficiently, doing it legally, of course, and providing what they promise to their constituencies in a reasonable fashion uh, that we ought to find a way to make it work. And so that, again, is why I pushed and I was glad to be part of Energy and Commerce Committee that uh, four years ago ended Obamacare and put in place a patient-centered approach to health care. Sadly, Chuck Schumer and others stopped that from going through the Senate, and President Trump was unable to sign it because it never made it to his desk. Had that taken place and been in place before the pandemic hit, I think we'd had a better outcome in dealing with the, the specific issues of individuals seeking health care and the health care providers, hospitals and individual uh, medical professionals in meeting the needs of people. So I will always push, push for, um, well, not always, where it fits, walking away from one size fits all to a more target approach, and especially in healthcare, saying the two most important component parts of healthcare are the patient and the provider. Absolutely, Congressman. And of course, uh, you have been a champion of all of the things that you're speaking about today. You live out every day, and you have been a, a great friend uh, to rural health. So let's let's talk a little bit about COVID-19. Uh, it's ever-present. Uh, it's a concern for government, healthcare, and uh, just about everyone else right now. Uh, sadly, many rural hospitals who have already uh, been on the brink because of reimbursement and volumes, and the list goes on, uh, did not survive the assault of COVID-19. Uh, and their communities are left without access to care, major job losses, and a massive domino effect from the closure of their local hospitals. So 
how do we prevent it from happening? And I know that's a, it's a big question, um, you know, but especially now uh, during COVID and the challenges that we face where, where we do need rural access to health care uh, for these individuals um, in a time today when the pandemic uh, is more real than it's ever been. Uh, and what do you see as Congress's responsibility in the near future, both either, you know, long term, near term, short term, when it comes to safeguarding rural hospitals? Well, I think, for instance, the, the bill we talked about to, for critical access designation is an important thing to do. I think we ought to be pushing for uh, more choice uh, for uh, health care in this country. I think we, we ought to be opening up the economy because without a strong growing economy, I don't care how good your health care is. If people can't afford it, uh, they're not going to be able to achieve success for themselves health-wise or success for care-wise from the hospitals or the providers. So to continue keeping a shutdown now a year without, without seeing a reason to believe that we are going to open up again and say, people, you know what you need to do, put those masks on, social distance where, where appropriate, uh, but get back to work, get back to school. Uh, let's get the history changed at this point in time, saying we have become Americans again. We are brave. We are strong. We're moving forward. We're doing things smart, but, we're, but we are also willing to take responsibility with accountability. I think that'll help a lot as well, because frankly, if we don't have economy, we're going to have more health care problems, whether it's depression, mental health issues, whether it's attempted suicides or whether it's sickness that's brought on by a loss of hope. Uh, because I've been shut down, I've lost my job, I'm losing my family, and, and all of that adds to the concerns. So again, I think one of the best things we can do is open up, let things move forward again, live with this issue. There'll be something that comes in the future to take its place. But in the meantime, we've done amazing things getting a vaccine out in seven months, which would normally be expected to take upwards of 10 years. Logistically, we're getting more than would have happened if we hadn't had uh, pharmaceuticals say, we'll, we'll stockpile vaccines, even if we haven't had approval yet, just in case we get the approval, we can roll them out. So a lot of good things have happened. Let's not forget that. But let's now redouble our effort to, to solidify the foundations again, all across our issue concerns, including healthcare. Okay, last question. We have talked about various aspects of healthcare policy today, but looking at the big picture, what does better healthcare in America look like? And what do you think we need to focus on first to get there? What are your main priorities in that regard? Well, I think we ought to give people their choice. We've got to do anything possible to expand the ability for the patient with consultation from the medical provider to make the best decision for their life. Secondly, I think we ought to push people to get back into normalcy in their lives, get back to work, get back to school, get back to doing things that will provide progress in moving forward. I think we ought to push for uh, significant healthcare, um, uh, proactive healthcare, where, whereby we get the gyms open again. We encourage people to do things that, that expand their health capabilities and provide incentives that, that encourage that as well. I think that can be done through uh, healthcare institutions of yourself. I know that you have an ability to encourage people to get the exercise that's necessary. You, you help train them on what's good hy uh, hygiene and, and healthcare habits, what's good on nutrition. Those type of things have to be looked at. 
And now for our favorite part of the show, the voice of the patient. Today, we have a story from Carol, who stayed in our short-stay rehab unit known as McGuire after breaking her hip. This is Carol's story. When Carol fell down, she knew she was going to need medical care. I knew right away it was my hip, she said. Carol and her husband, Ray, had just started strengthening at the Hillsdale Senior Center when she tripped over her own feet and took a tumble. Carol was immediately taken to Hillsdale Hospital, and it was confirmed that her hip was broken. Carol admitted that older patients like herself are not always the easiest or happiest people to care for. I know we are the worst patients, she said, but I decided to be an encourager. So, despite being in a lot of pain, Carol maintained a positive attitude. Her broken hip required surgery, and she was in the operating room by 5 p.m. that same day. The surgeon was thorough, kind, and patient, she noted. Following surgery, Carol spent a few days on the surgical floor before being transferred to the McGuire Skilled Nursing Facility. Carol's enthusiasm and positive attitude were helpful in her recovery. And being a retired nurse herself, Carol knows the hard work that goes into taking care of patients every day. She was a nurse for almost 50 years in the Adrian area. I have been the one who has given care, she said. Now I had to receive care. That was the hardest part. Once she transferred to McGuire, Carol said she was given excellent care. The physical therapy staff was great. They went above and beyond to make my stay comfortable. And the nursing care was great. They attended to my every need, she said. Carol stayed at McGuire for about three weeks, followed by physical therapy at Three Meadows. She is glad to be home with her husband, Ray, and thanks Hillsdale Hospital for the excellent care that she received. You know, one of the things I love about our hospital is that we have a skilled nursing facility attached to our main hospital, and it's stories like Carol's that really show the value of this type of care being offered right here in our own community. Before we close, Congressman, we'd like to do a fun segment with our guest. And so uh, we would like to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural living? The the people around me uh, in this community, uh, farmers, dairy farmers. um, uh, When I was a young pastor here attempting to acclimate myself to rural living, uh, having had some experience on an uncle's farm in Iowa as a kid, but never any extensive experience. I I asked them, teach me how to farm, put me on a tractor, put me on a combine. If you're, if you are daring enough to do that, uh, uh, put me on a hay mower and mow some hay. And so I I got to do a lot of that. And so I remember one night as I was fitting a field over in a hilly section here in the Irish Hills, I came out of, it was after dark, had the lights on, headed back on the road and turned and at the moment I turned, the, the tractor and, and cultipacker and disc behind me, heading downhill, I hit the brakes, missed, missed double brake, hit only one, jacked me to, I think, the right side, and I flipped that whole cultipacker disc uh, uh, oh my gosh. In, in the middle of the road. So I had to call, call the farmer friend who I was working for that night and say, uh, would you come, Dave, and, 
and extricate me of the situation. He drove up, <laughs> lights on it, took a look at it and said, how in the world did you do that? <laughs> there are stories all over this neighborhood of, of, of Tim Wahlberg and his experiences in doing things that other farmers at least never admitted to ever doing before, the capability that I have. And uh, I, I guess that, that uh, saying that, uh, I could add plenty of other things too, just showed how loving and caring the rural community was, because I think probably they'd seen that before, knew exactly how to extricate me from that, how to jack that thing back up on the right side, tell me, make sure you hit the brakes simultaneously in the future, and you won't have that happen again. But I remain part of the community. Uh, they still love me uh, here, I think, in this community, at least they haven't told me otherwise. And uh, we moved on together with good life experience. Thank you again for joining us today, Congressman Tim Wahlberg. Uh, Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll talk about profitability, part four in our series of the five Ps. Our guest for that episode is a newly elected state-level lawmaker, so be sure to tune in. And as a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during our Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, call our direct voicemail line at 269-447-1265 or send an email with your story written to marketing at hillsdalehospital.com and share your story with us. You just might be featured on a future episode of Rural Health Rising. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others while they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Representative Tim Wahlberg, United States Congressman serving Michigan's 7th Congressional District. For more interviews like this and more information, or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit RuralHealthRising.com.